then you're ultimately always staying one step ahead. And if you do see a trend that, man, we may be getting a correction, then you want to correct yourself six months before the market corrects you. As a loyal Best Ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Pejmon Gadimi. How you doing, Pejmon? How you doing, Joe? I am doing well. And you said your friends call you PJ, so I will call you PJ. You good with that? So a little bit about PJ. He is a self-made entrepreneur, best-selling author, and real estate investor. Three of his businesses collectively have grossed over $40 million in revenue annually. He's got a book that recently came out, Third Circle Theory, which focuses on achieving a higher level of self-awareness and leveraging the power of entrepreneurship. And he's now building and developing luxury properties based in Palm Beach, Florida. So with that being said, PJ, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. Actually, a big piece of my background is actually I've made my first million dollars quite a long, long time ago when I was 22 years old in real estate. And then ever since just got addicted to business. So I've built a lot of different companies, one of which is really well known called VIP Motoring, which is the world's first investment fund in alternative luxury assets. And then since then, I've also launched Secret Entourage, Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Conspiracy 3, very large online platforms that teach different aspects of entrepreneurship and luxury lifestyle. And today, I spend a lot of time just primarily kind of managing those businesses because I have different line CEOs that run each of them. But at the same time, I'm also building and really going into rehabbing really high-end properties that are above usually the $1.5 to $2 million range. And ultimately, just kind of taking as much time as I can, trying to do that along with all the thousands of other things that come through the day. How'd you make your first million as a 22-year-old? Well, it was actually flipping lots. It was actually a really interesting concept. This was pre-recession back in 08. So this was in 2005. And what I ended up doing is I was buying lots from some of the major builders without them actually knowing I was buying them. So what I was doing is I used to live in Northern Virginia, which was Washington, D.C. area. And it was a very booming market at that time. And I didn't know much about real estate or anything else. But what I did understand, because I was a banker at the time, I really understood the way people and the psychology of what people were buying and how they were buying it. And then I also understood how builders were indirectly extorting people by adding premiums to lots or land just because of demand. So people would line up like in the morning to buy a huge amount, like trying to buy a property. And so there would be like maybe 50 to 100 people line up for 10 properties available. So builders would come out and literally add premiums on the spot to some of these properties. So they would be like, well, if you want a house, the next five have a 50K premium or the next 10 have 
a 100K premium and so on and so forth. So they were really racking in the cash coming up with these made up premiums. So one of the things I did is I figured out kind of the angle as to where people were going to be going to be buying houses the following year. And I started going ahead of time and making deals with builders and developers who are going to build these areas to automatically secure four to five lots. And this was interesting for them because I was willing to put deposits on lots that didn't exist. And it was also good for them because it was at a time where there was no demand for their lots because they had no models and the market hadn't caught up in terms of location where those people were. So my main focus at that time was just to secure as many lots as I could. And I would go community to community before houses were built and try to secure anywhere from three to five lots. And then I would show up when those communities got hot, like about a year later, and still I was one of the first guys that was going to get his units. I would show up literally with these 5K deposits on these properties, and I would sell these lots as allocations right before they were due for optioning to people who were in line willing to pay 50 or 100K premiums. And I would sell it to them for 40 or like 10, 20K below what the builder was asking. So I was ultimately flipping $5,000 allocations for anywhere from 40 to 70 grand without ever having to take out a loan on a property or anything. I did this 72 times before they kind of caught on to what I was doing. <laughs> and eventually they put my photo in the back of their buildings and nobody could like any of these sales centers wouldn't never like sell me a property. And it was really funny because the first time I walked in there and I saw my picture, I swear, like flipped so hard because I thought maybe the FBI was looking for me or something. So I thought I was doing something illegal. So I got really scared. So I ended up sending my mother in there to pretend she wanted to buy a property to like ask him, why is that guy's photo in the background? And they were like, oh, we're just not allowed to sell him a property. And I was like, oh, shit, I got so lucky. So ultimately, that was kind of my first gig as a banker that allowed me to really leverage kind of perception and, and this idea of supply and demand and make it work out in my favor at a very young age. How have you taken that approach where you identified some demand and you were able to be creative and resourceful enough to leverage that to profits? How have you taken that approach to your other businesses? Well, that's actually the whole core of what my business VIP motoring was built off of. You see, after my banking career, I was a very successful banker, and at 25, I got fired. Why'd you get fired? Because I was a prick. I was one of the youngest bank managers in the United States at 18, and by 23, I was an executive VP. So that got to my head. I was driving a Lamborghini to work, and that wasn't working very well for a conservative bank. And I was very arrogant and very cocky in my approach, but I was very successful, meaning I was very good at what I did. But I was arrogant in my unhumbled approach in terms of how I looked at my peers or other individuals who were above me in that organization half their age and it got to my head. And so eventually I literally just fired myself thinking they would call me back and be like, hey, come back to work, don't worry about it, everything's good, but they never called me. So I literally walked out of a very, very good six-figure job literally by just thinking I would get a call the next day and it never happened. Hmm. But after that career ended, I realized I would never be a banker again because the odds of someone else hiring such a young banker, even though I had a track record, but now I had a track record from the only bank that couldn't back me up anymore. So I decided to get into the field. I loved cars with a passion and the recession was around the corner. I understood, to answer your question, that people were going to look for other places to put their money during a recession because as a banker, I understood that 
FDIC and also investments and stocks, mutual funds and everything were going to go to crap during a recession. So I was like, okay, we have all this money in the market and it needs to go somewhere. So what we do know about recessions is that luxury goods get really cheap, but they don't necessarily lose their value. They just lose their perceived value because of the lack of demand and the high supply. Because everybody, the first thing you dump when you know a storm is coming financially are your toys. So I knew that cars, art, watches, and things like that were going to get dropped. So I had saved a lot of money. I had my real estate money. I had a bunch of really good saving strategies from my past literally eight years of being or working, you know, that I put money aside. So I decided to go all in and ultimately buy a huge inventory of exotic cars and luxury assets from distressed companies that could no longer carry the inventory. So I bought it extremely cheap. And I ultimately, since I couldn't sell it because I knew the recession would last a couple of years, instead, I decided to create an investment model that would allow some of my own clients at the bank who were very high-end investors that had money and they were liquid and they wanted a vehicle to park it in, to ultimately park it in these cars and watches that they would never take delivery of, but I would ultimately become a storage facility for So out of that gave birth to the world's first alternative luxury fund that is called today VIP Motoring. It's fascinating. How much did you have saved when you went on your buying spree of the luxury vehicles and watches? I had a total of 2.6-ish in cash. And then I had my property was paid off. My personal cars were paid off. So I had more leverage there in terms of taking out more equity. I had that as a backup and put all my money in. I put almost 2.2 in and buy an inventory. What year did you buy the first car for this business? I already had cars. This was originally a side business before it became a fund. It was just a car wash, meaning I was just doing ultimately detailing and customizing because I had my own exotics. So I just evolved that business and I went into buying exotics from dealers who were distressed in 2000, I think it was late 2007. Got it. You said you had saving strategies, really good ones. What are some of those saving strategies that you use to get to that point? Oh, you mean in my past? Yeah, you said you'd saved money. You said you had really good saving strategies. Anything? Yeah, that- absolutely. One of my things from a very young age is I never spent money. I was invested. And what I mean by that is very different than what most people perceive that line to be. I didn't invest in stocks and all that stuff. That wasn't what I meant. I look at every single item I've ever wanted in my life as a possible investment. And if it's not an investment, I didn't buy it. When I wasn't in a position, even when I made some money, I didn't immediately spend my money, meaning I wouldn't go on vacations. I wouldn't go spending money in clubs because those are things that where your money disappears. When you go on vacation, for example, you spend $10,000 between your plane tickets, your hotel, your food and everything else. That money is gone by the time you come back. You have nothing to hold on to. So one of the ways I kind of entertained myself at a younger age, even though I wanted all the luxuries in life, but didn't actually want to spend money on them because I understood the importance of having money because I came from a very poor family, was the idea that I would only put my money in things that were investment vehicles. So a car can be an investment vehicle, even though we're taught that it's a depreciating asset. It's a depreciating liability if you understand the dynamics of how cars work. Meaning if we walk into a dealership, buy a car like a, Honda or Nissan or something like even Lexus, we're going to lose money because that little liability keeps depreciating over time, even if we lease it and we're ultimately paying to drive a car. On the other hand, if we put our money in a Lamborghini, for example, that knew was $200,000, but we're able to acquire it $100,000, 
whose lifelong value will always be $100,000, we're not able to park our money. And ultimately, even if we're paying a monthly payment, we're only paying into our own equity. So when we go sell that car five years later for $100,000, we just recoup our own money back. So this is what I call the wealth transfer strategy. And one of the big things I teach at Exotic Car Hacks and Watch Conspiracy is how to not spend your money, but how to transfer your wealth into things that previously were known as liabilities, but can be actual assets if you learn how to actually buy them and acquire them. What's another example besides the Lamborghini that might be surprising? Let me give you a very simple example of a watch. I'll give you one for men, one for women. So you can walk into a store like Macy's and you can buy the nicest watch they have in their store for maybe like, let's say a thousand bucks and you just spend a thousand dollars on a watch. Or you can learn how to buy the right, let's say, Rolex, because most people know what that is. And if it costs you, let's say, 15000 and you can acquire it for 6000 it'll always be worth 6000 So you can literally buy that Rolex, wear it, and it may even go up in the course of the next two, three years. So you could actually get out of it making money instead. So you'd rather spend 1000 or invest 6000 So it's kind of that model. And for women, the same can be said for... You walk into a store and buy a Michael Kors purse for like 500 bucks that has a worth of zero, or you go and actually find a Louis at 60% of its cost, and it's always going to retain that 60% of its cost. So you could literally wear your Louis and then sell it and get your money right back into the next item you want to buy if you later decide you want a Birkin or something else. So there are two keys to that approach. One is knowing that asset class because you've got to know the Birch versus the Coach versus the Louis Vuitton. And the second is buying at a discount. So how do you accomplish both of those things? Well, there's a couple of ways. In a simple nutshell, I teach it, which is the easiest way to do it. I teach it in different courses. But for the normal consumer, you just start looking at supply and demand and the ongoing pricing of the market. You can even look on simple sites like eBay or online to see what the secondary market is selling things for. And then once you understand that, then the acquisition strategy is a very long conversation. I don't know if we have time, but I'm happy to you know, <laughs> go deeper into it. But you can acquire these items at a fraction of the cost and then ultimately consume them without losing your actual spend money. So I totally understand now that you've described it briefly. I know you go in more in depth in your materials. One easy way is just looking on Amazon, seeing what those items are, what the pricing is. In terms of buying it at a discount though, what are some strategies that you've used to do that? Well, you want to buy luxuries the same way that I set up my fund back in the day. You want to buy luxuries from people who don't want them. And what I mean by that, for example, let's say you're buying a car. Why would a dealer want to sell it to you way lower than its cost? That doesn't make sense. Well, because the dealer's job is not to consume a Bentley or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. The dealer's job is to turn over inventory. And whenever inventory, regardless that it's in the handbag market, in the watch market, or in the car market, whenever inventory is not moving, it's costing the actual business owner money because there's money tied in inventory that's not moving. And since luxury goods are not high volume goods, inventory still needs to turn over for some type of revenue to be created. So one of the things people don't really understand is that dealers are dying to get rid of cars that aren't selling on their lots. 
And while the big argument becomes, well, why would someone want to buy a car that the dealer can't sell? But the dealer doesn't care what it sells. The dealer turns over inventory. So the dealer is marketing 15, 20, 30 cars at a time via you're looking for one car. And that's the advantage of the person versus the business. The business looks at everything as a number and looks at everything from the ability to just ultimately move it within a time frame. If it doesn't move in that time frame, it doesn't instantly change the marketing strategy, get better at it or anything because it has too many variables to care for. It just disregards the item. By disregarding the items, it looks for an exit. And if you as an individual understand how to position yourself, you can become that exit for the dealership, for the watch store, for the handbag store and everything in between. It's fascinating. Now, your focus currently on building and developing luxury properties, is that correct? It's one of my focuses, correct. Because the same way that I just told you that I did never like to spend money, it's the same exact thing. You see, I myself love large homes and exotic cars and everything in between. So the way I kind of work is that every two, three years, I ultimately either rehab a really high-end luxury property or I build one from scratch, then live in it within the first two, three years, enjoy it. While I do that, I build another one and then transition to the next one. So that way I'm not only living completely free and actually turning my own living situation into an income producing opportunity. Can you give some numbers or a case study on how you're able to do that and it works out financially? Yeah, of course. So let's say, for example, you can build a home for, let's say, $900,000 that appraises for 1.2, but you're the builder. So you're able to build it for less than that. So if you can build it for less, which is 900000 as an example, you're building in areas where the market's shifting up. So that same home that I have 900000 invested in, I'm living in that home, meaning I'm, as it takes about a, a year or less to build. But once I'm actually in it, I stay in it and ride the market up while I build my next one. So that home, ultimately, its base value goes up to, let's say, one one or one one five, which is only 150 grand up, 200 grand up. It's not a big deal. But what ends up happening is for me to live, I'll use a million dollar property as an example. That's roughly $9,000 a month for the mortgage, including your taxes and everything in South Florida. So the cost of that for an entire year, for example, is roughly about 100 grand. So if you're able to sit in a home for that you're in at 900,000 and you're able to then even if you have this mortgage payment or whatever it is, and you're able to sell it for 200K more three years later while recouping all the money you've paid on your mortgage or however way you structure that if you have enough cash, then more power to you to be able to live without the actual debt or the interest. But the basic principle is that as the equity market moves up, the actual cost of the home is actually more. So even if you have fees or anything else, you're able to every three years just keep shifting over and getting ultimately your own short-term rent back by living there. So you're not only getting your surplus minus your fees, but you're also getting the actual equity which you've paid back each month as you put money towards the home. And what happens in a market that just takes a dive bomb? You have to kind of stay current with what's happening. The market doesn't shift in an instant. I think what we see is we see indicators, especially because I was a banker long enough, we see indicators of how shifts are happening because markets change across the board. Like the housing market is connected to the car market. It's connected to the luxury market. It's connect, all of these things are interconnected. 
It's also interconnected to the tax market. It's interconnected to the supply and demand based on how many people are migrating into areas at any given times. We can look at the government right now and see all of these new tax laws taking a toll on a lot of these really expensive to live in areas like Connecticut, New York, and Virginia, for example. And we can see that those states are now going to cost even more to live in. So you're going to see migration towards other states that are like Texas and Florida, as an example. So that's why even if the appraised values of properties are not going up at the rate that the demand is coming into the market, it doesn't matter because demand, when backed by cash, pretty much avoids all appraisals or anything else. So if you can pay attention to these markers and understand what's happening, then you're ultimately always staying one step ahead. And if you do see a trend that, man, we may be getting a correction, then you want to correct yourself six months before the market corrects you. What are some of those indicating factors that you look for? One of the things I look for is the law and it's changing and it's a relaxed state towards banks. For example, right now, I look at a huge influx of money because of the private sector being so much more freed, meaning with the current administration not caring so much about limitations and basic laws around business, what it ends up doing is it just deregulates and freeze these capital markets, which become ultimately a very aggressive, greedy markets very quickly. We've seen how the administration is pushing back the Dodd-Frank, which became the ultimately the guiding principle on how banks were supposed to operate after the recession, because obviously we've seen the huge disaster that was and all the issues there, but yet now they're pushing it back. So we're going to see in the next six to 12 months more stated income programs on loans. We're going to see Main Street ultimately buying what Wall Street is selling. And whenever Wall Street does something and Main Street follows, when more of Main Street jumps on, that's a trend that stuff is ending, not stuff is getting better, but stuff is about to change. So if most loans on the market start becoming stated income and and those relaxed perimeters keep staying the way they are, it's going to cause a lot of the market to start being flooded with people who can't afford what they're getting on. So the affordability goes up, but it's going to end up happening. The supply is not there. So what ends up happening is the cost of everything keeps going up and keeps going up because the demand's there, the supply is not. But eventually that meets a threshold where that doesn't make sense anymore. Based on your experience as an entrepreneur and as an investor, what is your best advice ever for real estate investors? Don't be emotional towards anything you do. Look at everything as a number and understand that other people look at everything as a number as well. So I think the more you master the math and the less you worry about what is happening to you in that equation, the further you get in your endeavors because money is nothing more than a number. It doesn't come with any emotions. People have emotions. And so if you've invested in a property or you're in it an extra 50 grand and it's just not there, don't waste time trying to justify that emotional connection you have to that property. Get rid of it. Get out of it. Because the equation never lies. Money doesn't have an opinion. People do. And so it's important to just kind of follow that trend. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'll try. All right. I know you are. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. See a rundown or abandoned house? Well, snap a picture with the Deal Machine app 
to instantly find the owner and get in touch via direct mail, email, and phone in just 10 seconds. Search Deal Machine in your app store or visit dealmachineapp.com. Okay, best ever book you've read? The Alchemist. Best ever deal you've done? 24 hours sold a watch that I bought for 30000 for 58000 What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I didn't factor in the terms of the transaction as much as I got excited by the numbers on the transaction, if that makes sense. And will you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So I accepted a loan offer, meaning like I accepted a repayment on a property that was actually required, not just cash upfront, but also cash yearly. So I became kind of the investor in my own property. And that was a mistake. I had another offer that was less cash, that was less total, but all cash. And I should have taken that upfront because sometimes when you tie yourself down, you don't realize the opportunity cost of the, not the money, because you, if you have enough and it, it doesn't matter, but the time commitment and the mental commitment of still being invested in something is what I undervalued there. Mm, I hadn't heard of it put that way in terms of owner financing. If we're offering that, I'm glad you mentioned that. Best ever way you like to give back? Through all the things that they teach which just has become my everything. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're teaching, what you're doing? Everything we talked about, you can go simply to learnfrompj.com. It's a simple site where you can actually access all of my books. I've written 12 books. I have a dozen courses, everything from luxury assets to business, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. That sounds like a lot of fun and some probably open up the eyes on a lot of different aspects of what you're doing because... You take a different approach than what's typical, and it's grounded in, from what I can tell, a lot of sound logic. And if you had asked me prior to our conversation, okay, Joe, real quick, Lamborghini, asset or liability, <laughs> I would definitely have to say a liability. But now understanding, if we understand the market dynamics, as well as getting it at the right price and knowing how to do that, then certainly it could become an asset if you buy at the price that it most likely won't go under because then you've only got upside. So thanks so much for being on the show. Really grateful you're on. Learned a lot. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. You got it. See a rundown or abandoned house? Well, snap a picture with the Deal Machine app to instantly find the owner and get in touch via direct mail, email, and phone in just 10 seconds. Search Deal Machine in your app store or visit dealmachineapp.com.